Brethren, let's open our Bibles to Psalm 119. Psalm 119. And verse 136. Rivers of waters run down mine eyes because they keep not thy law. This is David the psalmist identifying and observing others that had forsaken the true way of God and were not keeping His law, and it caused him great grief and sorrow. Let us go to Acts chapter 17 and verse 16. Acts chapter 17 and verse 16. The Apostle Paul is waiting in the city of Athens for some of his ministerial colleagues to arrive. And we read in Acts 17, 16, Now while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was stirred in him when he saw the city wholly given to idolatry. Therefore disputed he in the synagogue with the Jews and with the devout persons and in the market daily with them that met with him. And amen. The Apostle Paul was stirred when he saw and observed and identified those that were not worshiping according to truth. And so for the last week, I have been in the no man's land of mixed emotions, of grief and sorrow, and of anger and having my spirit stirred. Both are correct. Both are righteous. The Bible says that the sweet psalmist of Israel wrote in Psalm 119 and verse 128, Therefore, I esteem all thy precepts concerning all things to be right, and I hate every false way. While on vacation last weekend, I first of all took my wife on the Lord's Day to a large contemporary Baptist church that had about 1,500 in attendance at 9 o'clock and about 1,500 in attendance at 11 o'clock. A church funded by the Southern Baptist Convention. The service lasted 70 minutes. The first 15 was the monotonous rock and roll music of a praise band. Very little, if any, congregational participation Then an offertory and another song from that rock and roll praise band. And then a pitiful 45-minute little psychological chat without naming anything a sin, without preaching boldly, using some ridiculous New Living Translation of the Bible. And I left grieving like David in Psalm 119 and angry like Paul in Acts chapter 17. I'm so sick of their music. The attire was pitiful. The attire was immodest. They weren't reverent. Everybody wanders in in casual clothing, sucking on their Starbucks coffee. For the first 20 minutes, they're wandering in and out like the service hadn't even started. 
The Bible tells us in the New Testament to worship acceptably with reverence and godly fear. In the New Testament. In the New Testament, it concludes that statement by saying, for our God is a consuming fire. That's the New Testament. I was very discouraged, disappointed, but provoked, and that's why I do it. If you wonder why I go and visit other churches, it's for me to see what's going on in these perilous times, the last days, and to be provoked. And let me tell you, by the time I get out of there, I am provoked. I am sad. I am angry. And I want to come home and make sure that we redouble our efforts and recommit ourselves that we are going to have a Bible Christian church and that this pulpit is going to emphasize the Word of God and there's only one Word of God and it's the King James Bible. I'm sick of hearing verses read to me that don't line up with the way I've memorized them over the years. Well, after that, I took my wife to an old-fashioned traditional Catholic church. She hadn't been to a solemn Mass before. You say, why would you take your wife to a Catholic church for the same reasons I just told you? I have taken my children and other parents' children over the years to Catholic Masses so that they would know that when this pulpit blasts against Catholicism and describes some of their practices, we are not making it up. You have to go in there to see the smoke. You have to get in there to hear the Latin. You have to get in there to see them hold up a cracker, have the chimes sound, and that cracker in all of their minds turns into the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ. You need to be in there to see them take the leftovers of that communion and stick it in a little doghouse or godhouse and get down on their knees and worship it. Standing room only. Packed. Now here's what troubles me. A giant priest of that order stood and preached for 16 minutes and 28 seconds and he annihilated the Baptist. The Sunday that the Lord arranged for me to be there was the Sunday out of 52 in which they remember the baptism of the Lord Jesus Christ by John the Baptist. And it was all about baptism. And this priest had been raised an Anabaptist by his words. I was raised an Anabaptist. I was taken to Baptist churches when I was young. When I went to Princeton, I became an atheist. Then I became a Catholic. Brethren, he blasted that congregation of about 600 souls with the fact that 75% of Catholics in America will not be at Mass today. They are nothing but baptized pagans. The reason Baptists think that our infant baptism is superstitious and heresy is because they look at our lives and they see that Catholics don't live up to those infant baptisms because we have so many baptized pagans. I'm just being rattled. I mean, that is, that is a powerful point. He said, you better remember when you were, ba- you can't remember. 
So he said, go home and find your baptismal certificate. And every year, you ought to remember, this is the anniversary of your baptism, and you should live like you're a child of God, filled with the Holy Ghost, and a member of His church. The women were modest. They were reverent. The place was half filled with everyone sitting quietly 15 minutes before it started. Of course, it's an abominable heresy and an abomination of the earth of the great whore of Rome. Of course, I know all that. But I'll tell you, the state of affairs in this country are pitiful. When a Catholic priest can get up and thunder away and make the man before him look like an effeminate little Girl Scout leader in the pulpit. Lord, have mercy upon us. I thank God through Jesus Christ, my Lord, that He has opened our eyes to the truth, our ears to the truth, our hearts to the truth, and He's opened our minds to and to hear He has sent men with beautiful feet to preach us the gospel of peace and to say, Thy God reigneth. He has sent men that taught me, Psalm 119 and verse 128, that we esteem all His precepts concerning all things to be right and we hate every false way. I am so thankful for that. Thank You, Lord. Heavenly Father, have mercy upon us. Forgive Your people as they commit spiritual adultery with the world and false religions, and by their lightness profane your worship. Did you hear the words that were read to you? By their lightness, they profane the worship of God. Let me go further. So by the end of last Sunday, I was ready for a pulpit. Those blasphemous, abominable priests of the Roman Catholic Church I walked past one of their vaults and it said in honor of a priest, a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. There's only one priest after the order of Melchizedek and it is the Lord Jesus Christ. In the last couple of days, Alex Malarkey, who was full of malarkey, He's the little six-year-old boy that went to heaven and came back. He finally got some attention of people that have published his book. Tyndale House published his book in 2010, and it's been sold in the Lifeway bookstores, the Southern Baptist Convention. Over a million copies have sold. He finally got someone's attention to tell them that I lied about the whole thing. As if we didn't already know. We already knew that. This is in the last 48 hours. His father, Kevin, taking advantage of that little boy, his mother has written letters and tried to tell Tyndale and tried to tell Lifeway to get that book out that there are a lot of discrepancies and faults in it and nobody would because it was a moneymaker. Then when the kid finally gets an interview and says, I lied about the whole thing. If people would just read... This is what he... If people would just read the Bible, they would know everything they need to know about heaven. I'd let him right in here if he was here. He's very, he's very handicapped. We'd build a little platform. We'd let him up so that he could say that to you. We believe that. The Word of God is sufficient to make the man of God perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. My brethren, New Spring 
New Spring Church that has about 10 different venues around the state, over 45,000 assembling on a Sunday. Their pastor, Perry Noble, Southern Baptist trained and experienced, on Christmas Eve, preached a new sermon that he said the Lord gave him. And you should hear him describe how he told the Lord, no, I've already got plans. And the Lord said, no, you're going to do this. And it went on and on, this exchange of how the Lord gave him this sermon. And on Christmas Eve, he preached that there is no word for command or commandment in the Hebrew language. Therefore, the Ten Commandments should not be called the Ten Commandments. They should be called the Ten Promises. And he completely rewrote the Ten Commandments to Ten Promises that are unrelated to telling the people of God not to do anything. All you need to do is type into a Google search box, Perry Noble Ten Commandments. Yes. That, that got a little bit of attention. And he's tried to apologize without apologizing. He said he got his information from a great man of God that he loves to be with and who teaches him the, tr- the deep truths of worshiping God. A taxi driver in Israel who told him there is no word for command or commandment in Hebrew. Well, some men who know Hebrew better than a taxi driver have taken him to task. Listen, that is happening in our area. What is happening to the pulpits of the churches of America? Brother, did you see in Jeremiah 23, verse 15, that it affects the nation? That 15th verse is on what we talked about just recently. What's happened to the pulpits of this country? Mark Driscoll. Ever heard of him, Maroonix? Mars Hill Church in Seattle, Washington. A mega church, a new Calvinist, a number of branches. He has trivialized Scripture so much in his preaching, he's so crude and so crass, so graphic and unnecessary, childish and jesting in the pulpit, that eventually, after several years, it raised enough opposition that he had to step down. The trustees of the church closed it. Mark Driscoll, Mars Hill, you can type that into a Google search box. The saga of Ron and Hope Carpenter, an apostle and apostoles here in Greenville, I'll let go. Stephen Furtick and the Elevation Church in Charlotte, another Southern Baptist trained master of divinity minister, and that caricature of a church, we'll leave that go. You might want to look up Jane Voights, a woman ordained a Methodist preacher after her career in stand-up comedy, is now going around with the Bible cabaret in which she tells jokes from the pages of Scripture. Those are just a few of what assaults us if if you're looking at all. Now the Lord led me to take my wife to those two places, and then these things have happened in the last few weeks, and I've just been informed of them in the last few days. And then I have this passage of Scripture in front of me, and I think the timing is absolutely flawless. 1 Peter chapter 5. And turn with me there now. 1 Peter chapter 5. And let's open the Word of God 
If you heard those passages of Scripture that were read to you, if you read the passages of Scripture that were suggested last night, your mind and your heart are already filled, you are already sad, and you are already angry. The Lord is against them all. The Lord blasts them all. The Lord curses them. I love the Word of the Lord, how strong it is. The, The man that has a dream, let him tell a dream. Do you know how many of these men will get up and say, the Lord told me? I'm going to show you in writing what the Lord told me. Because the written scriptures are better than God's voice from heaven. This man, Peter, said so. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 21, six verses, he said, I was on the Mount of Transfiguration and heard the voice of God from heaven in the presence of Jesus, Moses, and Elijah. But we have also a more sure word of prophecy. Whereunto ye do well that ye take heed, as unto a light that shineth in a dark place, until the day come and the day star arise in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture. Scripture is better than God's voice from heaven in the presence of Jesus, Moses, Elijah, and James and John. Do we still believe that? That is why I entered the ministry. If it weren't for that, I have nothing to say. I'll go my way, you go your way. We'll worship God from our heart. But God called me to preach the Word. And it's more sure than all of those things. I read to you the first four verses of 1 Peter chapter 5. I wish that I could put you inside my skin earlier this week when I was so worked up and all that the Lord just then said, remember, Jonathan, what you have to preach on Sunday when you get back. The elders. 1 Peter 5.1. The elders. The elders. The elders which are among you, I exhort who am also an elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. Feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind, neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd shall appear, ye shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. Amen Amen and amen. amen. This is a general epistle. When we use the words a general epistle, we mean that it is an epistle written to churches and their membership, like Romans for Paul. The pastoral epistles are three, first and second Timothy and Titus, because they are written to pastors. And so the words in those 13 chapters pertain more to Timothy and Titus and their descendants in the work of the ministry than they do the average church member. Here is one of those relatively rare places where there are four verses singling out the ministry in this in these places that Peter was addressing. The safety, prosperity, and happiness of churches depend on faithful pastors. First right. Timothy four sixteen. You'll hear it in the second service. Paul told Timothy, Take heed unto thyself 
and unto the doctrine. Continue in them those two things. For in doing this, thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear thee. The safety and health and prosperity and happiness of churches depends upon faithful ministers. And so the Apostle Peter, as he gets toward the close of this epistle, after he has exhorted the members very strictly, he goes after the elders in these four verses. The elders which are among you. Where there is no vision, the people perish. I hope you read that in my preparatory email Yesterday, where there is no vision, the people perish. But he that keepeth the law, happy is he. When we take those two clauses, where there is no vision, the people perish, the first half. But he that keepeth the law, happy is he, the second half. And we compare and contrast them, we get the full meaning. Where there is no vision means where there is no Bible preaching. It has nothing to do with us having a vision that someday our church is going to number 500. That's how the verse is usually used. If you don't have a vision of great things in numbers for your church, the people perish. They need somebody with a vision. Well, I've got a vision of a group of people of any number that will follow the Word of God regardless of anyone else around them, publicly and privately, corporately and individually. That's my vision. And we'll let the Lord take care of the numbers. Where there is no vision, the people perish. But he that keepeth the law, happy is he. Where there is no Bible preaching, the people perish. But where there is Bible preaching and the people obey that preaching, prosperity and happiness result. That's what Proverbs 29 and verse 18 teach us. What is a primary source for the blessings of America? Why is America great? Is America great because she has befriended the Jews, as so many dispensationalists want to tell us? Because we have befriended the most Christ-hating people on earth? Is that why America is great? Well, we're still doing it. So why is America going down? They still exist by our aid. They're still there on their little piece of sand at the eastern end of the Mediterranean by our help. No, America is great because from sea to shining sea, the pulpits of America thundered out the Word of God. And they were protected and they were promoted. The language and terminology of the Word of God came through in proclamations, came through in legislation, was spoken in high places of authority in our country. It was taught in our schools. You can look at McGuffey's readers from the early days. You can talk to men that are in their 70s, and they will tell you that in the public schools, they were taught to memorize Scripture. In in just these last few decades, we have totally changed The Bible cannot be brought into school. The Bible cannot be used as a source document for any research paper or for any paper. You can't pray in school. Public prayer is gone. Ten commandments are out. That is what has changed. And the nation is tanking. And the pulpits are now men that entertain. They're either a personality cult where the people are following them and their enthusiasm, 
or they are entertaining with a praise band, or they are telling fables, or they are telling dreams, instead of preaching the Word of God. Even when the Word of God is preached in error, but the Word of God is being preached, God will bless. Even Arminian pulpits 50 years ago would preach from a King James Bible, and they would preach against sin, and they would demand repentance. After every invitation in an Arminian church, they would have an opportunity for rededicating your life to Christ and they would blast a compromising lifestyle. Right. Fifty years ago, I was a little boy. I was hauled around Michigan and heard them. Jennings. Remember? Temple Baptist. Down by where Charlie lived. Remember? Now it's Northridge. 40 miles, 30 miles away. What is the primary source for America's greatness? Bible preaching from shore to shore. Amen. What is a primary source for the ruin of America? The decline of preaching God's Word. There is residual value in the Word of God even when it is not fully understood and fully applied. Do you remember the immigration program of the king of Assyria, who brought a bunch of foreigners into Israel. They were idolaters, and so the lions came out and ate them, and they petitioned the king that we've got a problem with lions. Could you send us some priests to tell us how to please this God here a little bit better? So they raised up some foolish priests and sent them, and they preached to the people a little bit about how this God needs to be worshipped, and so it says, they feared the Lord and served their idols. But the lions went away. Do you understand that? Even partial. These guys getting up and telling their dreams and creating a personality cult, that isn't preaching the Word of God. Getting up and redoing the Ten Commandments and turning it upside down, that isn't preaching the Word of God. Coming out in some wicked t-shirt every Sunday that caricaturizes Jesus and Christianity. I'm speaking of Mark Driscoll. Lord have mercy. Rivers of waters run down my eyes, and yet my spirit is stirred within me, and I want to dispute, and I want this church to recommit itself and redouble our efforts to be a faithful church. The elders which are among you, I exhort. The elders that Peter exhorted here are the pastors, teachers, bishops, Those are all words for the same office and the same man of the churches that he wrote. If you go down through this passage, you will see that the word feed is being used and the word overseeing is being used, which are the two parts of a minister's job. Feeding the Word of God, knowledge and understanding, Jeremiah 3.15, feeding them and then overseeing them, ruling, leading, guiding, directing the church. That's the two parts of a minister's job. They're both right here. They're both in any good passage of Scripture about the ministry. When it concludes in verse 4, it refers to the chief shepherd, because every other minister is an under-shepherd, a little shepherd, an Indian shepherd, as composed to the chief, forgive me that little (laughs) metaphor, the chief shepherd versus the little shepherds. Remember that when we go back to chapter 1 and verse 1 of this epistle, 
Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to the strangers, that is the Jewish people that were not in Israel but were scattered in the Roman Empire, throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. Those are five provincial areas of the Roman Empire, and they had a number of churches in each one. So there's a plurality of elders that are being addressed, and a number of them would have been Jewish converts that were ordained to the ministry by the Apostle Paul. And so he says, the elders which are among you. There could have been a sizable number of ordained Jewish bishops in this exhortation here. The term elders, and listen, I don't want to get hung up on anything today and go chasing too many details. The details are available. The details have been prepared, 10 pages, single-spaced, but I don't want to do that to you right now. I want you to re- I want you to retain the conviction that hopefully you already have the rivers of water running down your eyes and the anger and frustration inside of you that wants to have a church that will stand fast and hold fast to the King James Bible and exactly what it teaches and reject and hate and despise every innovation, invention, modification, and compromise, no matter how many or who is making that invention, innovation, compromise modification. The term elders is a general name for leadership in some civil or ecclesiastical office or role. It is not the real name of an office. It's, it's like when we use the word rulers or magistrates, judges, or civil servants. If I use the word civil servant, do you know what office I'm talking about? You don't. If I use the word ruler, do you know what office I'm talking about? We don't use the word elders anymore, except Respect your elders, and we mean an old man, and that's what it means in verse 5. Likewise, ye younger, submit yourselves unto the elder. And there we know that elder is referring to age because it's got younger right there in the sentence. It's helpful. Then we know it's age. Here it's not age. It's two job responsibilities. Feed and oversee. That's a minister. That's a pastor. That's a pastor-teacher. Go to Ephesians chapter 4. I don't think anyone in here has a problem with this, but let's just do it for the sake of making sure. Ephesians chapter 4 is the Apostle Paul quoting from Psalm 68 and verse 18, which I hope that some of you might have read last evening. Psalm 68 and verse 18 has me in it. Because the prophecy given to David in Psalm 68 and verse 18 says this, Thou hast ascended on high. This is prophecy of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thou hast ascended on high. Thou hast led captivity captive. Jesus Christ. Thou hast received gifts for men. Jesus Christ. Yea, for the rebellious also. Jonathan Crosby. Along with Moses, Jeremiah, Jonah, Saul of Tarsus, and so forth. That the Lord God might dwell among them. I'm thankful that the Lord can use a rebellious man. Ephesians 4 and verse 11, and he, no, I'm going to go back to verse 8 so that you can see Paul quoting David. Wherefore he saith, and that's Psalm 68 and verse 18 in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 8. Wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Now that he ascended, what is it but that he also descended first, into the lower parts of the earth. He that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave some, this is the Lord Jesus Christ, 
who received gifts from God to give to men. And he gave some, not very many, apostles. Some men were given the gift of apostleship. Some prophets. Some men, not very many, were given the gift of being a prophet. And some were given the gift of evangelists and some pastors and teachers. And the sum is only applied once to both words. It's a pastor-teacher. Can you see that? Some goes to apostles, some goes to prophets, some goes to evangelists, and then some goes to this office that is described by two words, pastors and teachers. Pastors, coming from the word pasture, referring to providing pasture for sheep. It's like a shepherd. And teacher being a more specific word that we understand literally of communicating and conveying information to other people. Let's go back over there to 1 Peter chapter 5. The elders. You can find elders in Egypt. You can find elders of every city. You can find elders of Moab, elders of Midian, elders of Israel. When the mob came after Jesus, there were scribes, there were Pharisees, there were priests, there were elders. It's a vague, general term for someone in authority, often referring to their older age, because most men in authority are usually older. But remember this, Timothy was an elder. And 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 12, Paul told Timothy, Let no man despise thy youth. So age is not a qualification. It's just our unfortunate understanding of the word because we don't call rulers or magistrates or judges ever do we call them elders. And so we've got this general term of elder. There are only two offices left in the New Testament church and the two offices are bishop and deacon. Elder is not an office per se. It's not a title. What does elder mean? You would say, well, it means older. Then fine. You've just proven that the word has nothing to do with the ministry. Because Timothy wasn't older. It's just a general term. And the Bible, when it wants to be specific, uses its two specific titles. Bishop and deacon. When we go into a pastoral epistle of 1 Timothy chapter 3, we find the first seven verses giving the qualifications for the work and office of a bishop. What does the word bishop mean? It's an overseer or someone who overlooks. That's what it means. It's embodied in this word, and I'm not going to tell you about Greek. It's worthless to you. All we need to know is what does a bishop do and what does it say here? And we know that somewhere in the title for that office, they're supposed to take the oversight thereof. Because it says so here in 5.2. But a bishop means overseer. A pastor means a feeder. A teacher is more obvious. He has to be apt to teach, a bishop does, because he's got to communicate and convey information. And he's got to do it effectively for the profit of hearers. There's only two offices. When we go to 1 Timothy 3, there's seven verses about the bishop. Then there are six verses about the deacon, period. There are no more descriptions. When we go to Philippians chapter 1 and verse 1, Paul wrote and said to the church and saints there and the bishops and deacons, because those are the only two offices that there are. Apostle has gone away. Except in Greenville, of course, and lots of other places. You know that there's 12 sitting around a table out in Salt Lake City, don't you? 
the apostles have gone away, the prophets have gone away, and the New Testament idea, concept, and office of evangelist has gone away. Because an evangelist could perform miracles like Philip did. Philip was an evangelist, and Philip shows us what an evangelist could do. Can you just finish preaching and baptizing someone and disappear and appear in another city and keep on preaching in Azotus? And prophesying and having daughters that prophesied. Those were the gifts of the New Testament church. When Paul gets into 1 Timothy 3, he doesn't give the qualifications for an evangelist. There's only two offices left. This is Baptist doctrine. This is Baptist church doctrine that's been held for 2,000 years. There is bishop and there is deacon. There is no evangelist. There is no prophet. There is no apostle. They're all gone. We are all second generation ministers that have to study the Word of God. 2 Timothy 2.15 Paul to Timothy, study to show thyself approved unto God. Paul didn't study. Paul didn't need to study. Paul had the gift of prophecy and he could reveal God's will and God's Word live. From his inside out. And there were other men that had small, partial gifts of prophecy in the early church. There are only two offices left. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 12 and just see them listed in a different way. But notice, even in Ephesians 4, they were put in order of value and importance to the church. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. You know, pastor has a real functional meaning to it. It's from the word pasture, providing pasture or feeding or giving nutrients to sheep. That's what pastor means. Bishop has a functional value to it because it means an overseer or someone overlooking something. And so those, those words have meaning. And a teacher, obviously it has meaning. It's to convey information. Now the word elder, when I say it to you, and I get, up to, I get upset about the use of the word elder. Not in God's word. But when men pull that word elder out and create an office that God never created. Presbyterians and Reformed Baptists Mm -hmm. and their infatuation with some office called a ruling elder. Amazing. Amazing corruption of Scripture. This ruling elder, he doesn't have to have the gift to teach. He can work his full-time job all the way to retirement, but he gets together in a little group of ruling elders and they get to tell the, the preaching elder what the church needs and what should be done. There's no such office in the Bible whatsoever anywhere. Right. The preachers are always the rulers, and the rulers are always the preachers. 1 Timothy 5.17, Let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially they who labor in the word and doctrine. Hebrews 13.7 says it this way. Hebrews 13.7 Remember them which have the rule over you who have spoken unto you the word of God. They're doing both functions. Here it's both functions in 5.2. The overseer is also the one feeding. The one feeding is also the one overseeing. But we, I wanted to get 1 Corinthians 12, verse 28. And God hath set some in the church. First, apostles. The highest office in the New Testament church were the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ. Those 12 original men that God chose. Judas was thrown out of the office, replaced by Matthias in Acts chapter 1. Then Paul was added to it. Apollos was added to it. Barnabas was added to it. James, the Lord's brother, was added to it. There's like 17 that are called apostles in the New Testament. But the general number that is used is 12. 
Because that's just to be understood, just like there are 12 tribes of Israel, but there's actually 14. You say, how do you get 14? By pulling out Joseph and pulling out Levi and sticking in Manasseh and Ephraim. You don't need any of that. Some, Not much of it. God has set some in the church. First, apostles. I love it when the Lord puts things in order for us. Secondarily, prophets. Thirdly, teachers. There's a pastor, teacher, bishop, elder. After that, miracles. So the gift of miracles like Benny Hinn, though it might get your attention, is below preaching the Bible. Right. Teaching the Bible. It doesn't say prophesying. It just says teachers are above performing miracles. You know, charismatics do not like that. They put all the emphasis on their miracles rather than teaching. After that, miracles, then gifts of healing. Wow, Benny's falling fast. Then gifts of healings, helps, that's like deacons or others, governments, diversities of tongues. You know, tongue speaking is the last and least gift in the New Testament church. Tongue speaking is so inferior that if you look at the fourth, the third gift here, the third gift of teaching is 2,000 times better than the last gift in the list of speaking in tongues. You say, how do you prove that? Because in 1 Corinthians 14, Paul said, I would rather speak five words with my understanding than 10,000 words in an unknown tongue. So, speaking and teaching is 2,000 times better than speaking in tongues. Back to 1 Peter chapter 5. Baptists and others have shied away from using the word bishop because it has connotations and associations with the Catholic Church and with the Methodist Church. But we cannot let them so cloud our understanding of words that they cause us to compromise in understanding at all. We can't do that. If there are ruling elders that do not teach and teaching is not their primary duty, then they must be deacons. For there are not three offices. And the ruling of deacons is only in things natural, things earthly, things that distract the bishop or the pastor or the teacher, the same office by all three words, from his spiritual duties. The elders which are among you. We deny multiple elders as necessary for a local church's oversight since the Bible does not require such a thing. Presbyterians and Reformed Baptists have invented multiple elders and they create their multiplicity by having ruling elders that are not paid, that don't teach, that are not apt to teach. They're just good business managers. That is not taught in the Word of God. There's deacons. Deacons should be good business managers because deacons were given the oversight of a major business proposition in Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 11, or 1 through 7, and that business there was overseeing the distribution of daily food in the support of a great number of widows in a very large church. Do you need seven deacons in a church to be scriptural? Of course not. Most churches aren't going to have enough work for seven deacons. But the church at Jerusalem did. And that job could have been large enough that all seven of them were full-time men. No, You don't need seven deacons. You don't need multiple bishops. If there were multiple bishops, one of them is going to be the pastor and the ultimate leader of that church like James was in the church at Jerusalem because at the Council of Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15, after listening to Peter, after listening to Paul, James said this. Acts chapter 15 and verse 
13, after they had held their peace, that means Peter and Paul stopped talking, James answered saying, Men and brethren, hearken unto me. And James gives, gives the summary of the council at Jerusalem. When the Lord Jesus Christ addressed the seven churches of Asia, He addressed the singular angel of each church. The singular pastor of each church. When Paul wrote Titus chapter 1, in verse 5 he said, Titus, I have left you in Crete to set in order the things that are wanting. One bishop, who is also called a pastor, who is also called a teacher, who is also called a pastor and a teacher, who is also called a shepherd, one of them can do anything that the New Testament needs because Paul left Titus by himself in the island of Crete to set in order the things that were lacking. So we don't believe in multiple elders. And especially we don't believe in multiple elders of a ruling elder sort that Presbyterians and Reformed Baptists have invented. Did New Testament churches have multiple elders? Meaning? Multiple bishops? Maybe. Jerusalem sure did. What were some of the other titles of those multiple elders? Apostles, because we're going to learn right here in this verse that an apostle was an elder. Because that elder is so vague, it's just a big umbrella term of those in charge, the leadership. You say, well, why did God use it and not use bishop everywhere? Because He wanted you to study your Bible, just like everything else we find in the Word of God. Did you hear Jim Cutler last Sunday wanting to explain to you about the the first three words of Psalm 27 and verse 13? They're in italics. Why did God put it in italics? Because He wanted us to study the Bible. And Jim shared with you the fact that Jesus, in Matthew chapter 22, for anyone that loves the King James Bible, listen to this. In Matthew chapter 22, Jesus argued against the Sadducees that there was a human spirit because God said to Moses, 400 years after Abraham died, I am the God of Abraham. That present tense verb am proves that Abraham was still existing in some form. They knew he was buried. So Jesus was arguing from Exodus that Abraham was still alive by the verb to be am. I am. The present tense form of the verb to be. Jesus made a doctrinal argument from one little two-letter word am. The present tense of the verb to be. And when you go look that up in the Old Testament, that little am is in italics. So we argue from italicized words, brother. I enjoyed very much hearing that this pulpit didn't compromise or suffer at all and that the Word of God was exalted very much. Did New Testament churches have multiple bishops? Sometimes, maybe. You know, we're not, we don't have an explain. You say, well, it says bishops in Philippians 1-1. How do you know how many congregations there were in Philippi? They didn't all drive late model cars to zip around town and get to places easily. How do you know there weren't multiple congregations? We're not told. We just know that one man can do everything. Timothy was told that the man of God is made perfect not by a committee, not by trustees, not by a board of deacons, not by a board of ruling elders, but he's made perfect by the Word of God in Second Timothy three, sixteen and 17. I don't want any more time on that. Which are among you. Brethren, let's bless God and thank Him for calling men who give their lives to serve among His people. Their feet are beautiful, the Bible says. 
You heard in my prayer this morning that the book of Proverbs tells us when a man gives a right answer, a good answer, you want to kiss his lips. We should. We want to be thankful for the men who have preached to us the word of truth, who have opened up the word of God to us, who loved it, who delight in every word, who are faithful to it, who rightly divide it, who treat it reverently, who have conveyed it to us, who have shown us its balance, have shown us its beauty, have shown us its power, have shown us its different genres of literature, have opened up its pithy proverb sayings. We want to be thankful. And men have blessed me, and I am thankful for them. I want us to be thankful for our government. You sometimes may wonder, what is this doing in the church update? It is there to make you thankful for our government. Because I'm told to be thankful for them. And I'm supposed to convey that to you and feed you that knowledge and understanding that we should be thankful for our civil rulers, and we should be thankful for those men that have preached to us the word of truth. The presence of faithful God-called ministers is a blessing. You know, that in the times of Samuel, there was no open vision. God was not dealing with His people. How could He? Eli loved his kids too much. His two sons were two priests that were committing adultery with women when they came to offer their sacrifices and stealing their sacrifices. How could He? And then Samuel came on, and the Lord appeared to Samuel by the word of the Lord. And you should, you should read about the blessing that God brought through that little boy. He wasn't an elder, was he? But he was. He was a leader of that nation even from a young age. Amen. The lack of faithful God-called ministers is a need to beg God for it. There's a harvest. We need men. We want God to raise up men. You say, what do you fantasize about, Pastor? I fantasize about finishing off my basement and having five men or more living down there and I get to convey to them what's been conveyed to me. You want to know about my fantasy? I want men that love this Word and that love to study and that love every word of this Word and don't care about anyone except the Lord Jesus Christ and are not afraid of anyone but yet have a compassion for God's people. When I said don't care about anyone, they don't care about the looks on their faces. They don't care about what they say. They know that they're going to be held accountable to the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the attitude that a minister has to have. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. This is an arrogance. This is the fact that a minister is committed to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not arrogance by a CEO for enforcing what the board of directors wants to have happen in a company. He's supposed to do that. He better come off sounding confident. He better come off sounding like this is the way it's going to be or it's the highway. Listen to what Paul had to say to this rebellious church at Corinth. 1 Corinthians 4.1 Let a man so account of us as of the ministers of Christ. Here's a preacher of the gospel. Now, Paul was an apostle, but is referring to himself as a steward of knowledge and understanding. Because he says, let a man so account of us as of the ministers of Christ. You should look at me and my ministerial colleagues, Paul is saying, and account for us that we are the servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have been commissioned, abled, gifted, and sent by Him. And we are stewards 
of the mysteries of God. Stewards is like a financial officer. And the riches here in the treasury are not silver and gold, but the things of God's Word. Stewards of the mysteries of God. Those things that cannot be known by the natural man, but can be taught by a man of God using the Bible. Moreover, it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. God's going to hold him accountable to be faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged of you. This is not arrogance. But with me, it is a very small thing, a very small thing, that I should be judged of you or of man's judgment. Yea, I judge not mine own self. I don't do anything by what I think would be the best or would be right. For I know nothing by myself. Yet am I not hereby justified, but he that judgeth me is the Lord. The fact that I intuitively, inherently, do not know how to be a pastor does not justify or excuse me because the Lord's going to hold me accountable. Paul is saying, and I say with him. And I don't really care what you think about what I do in discharging my office because I'm doing it in faithfulness to God. And it's those kind of men that we want. Faithful men that will tell a board of direct deacons, I'll leave that to your imagination. They think they're the guardian of the pulpit. Not one of them is competent or qualified to be in the pulpit. That's why they were ordained as deacons. And I don't say that haughtily. I am going to preach the Word of God exactly as it is. with With its emphasis, which are among you. God has set the ministry of His servants in the churches of Jesus Christ. Back there in 1 Corinthians 12, 28, it said, And God hath set in the church. You know, we don't float around. We don't live in monasteries. We don't live in monasteries and write books. We don't end up our lives for the last 20 years living on a little island off Scotland and write books. That isn't what a minister is supposed to do. He's supposed to be among people and feed them. You know how nice that would be? Just to sit, listen, I'm a loner. By nature, I don't like people. By nature, I'm a loner. To sit off and not take care of a flock. I'm referring to an author that uh, we have in our library in a book that we give away. And if you don't know who it is, that's okay. I exhort. Who's exhorting here in 1 Peter 5.1? The elders which are among you, I exhort. This is Peter. He starts off by telling them, I'm an apostle. Back there in chapter 1 and verse 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Here, he's going to condescend as an elder, which is very humble and very useful and very interesting. Because is there a church on earth that thinks Peter was pretty special? Notice what he refers to himself. Who am also a pope? No. Who am also a cardinal? No, who am also an archbishop. That means a super bishop in the Catholic Church. No, who am also an elder. He lowers himself from apostle to prophet to ev- he had them all, evangelist, pastor, and teacher. Isn't that great? What does that do to Catholicism? It smashes it right in the teeth. Just like the Word of God is supposed to and just like the Word of God does from cover to cover. The elders which are among you, I exhort. The pastoral epistles of Paul are 13 chapters long, and they include everything that Peter says here, but a whole lot more in those 13 chapters. 
True Christianity has traditions, and our traditions are apostolic. We do want to have traditions, but the only traditions we want are those taught in the Bible. Second Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 15 and chapter 3 and verse 6 both tell us that we are to have traditions, and those traditions are what come to us from the apostles, and the only thing we know from apostles is what was written down by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ in our New Testament Scriptures, who am also an elder. He doesn't lord it over them as a pope, as Holy Father, who am also your Holy Father. In fact, your Holy and Reverend Father. I want you to think of some titles for the Pope. What? This is the perfect opportunity. I'm addressing you elders. Remember, I'm the greatest elder of all. Remember, I'm the Pope. Remember, I'm Pontifex Maximus. Super Pope. Vicegerent of Christ, Prince of the Apostles, Vicar of Jesus Christ, God on earth, holder of the keys of the kingdom of heaven, the only one that can speak ex cathedra, cardinal or even archbishop. It's just all washed away by Peter sticking in here, who am also an elder. Isn't that wonderful? All we got to do is read the Word of God. And a witness of the sufferings of Christ. I want you to notice something interesting. You know, we trust every word of our Bibles. Notice that there is a four-letter adverb in the first descriptive clause and a four-letter adverb in the third descriptive clause of this first verse, but that four-letter adverb is not in the second descriptive clause of Peter. The elders which are among you, I exhort. Now he's going to give three descriptive statements about himself. Who am also an elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. What's missing in the middle clause? Also, because they didn't see the Lord Jesus Christ on trial. They didn't see the Lord Jesus Christ tortured. They didn't see the Lord Jesus Christ crucified. He had. Now, they're elders, and he's an elder, so he uses also, meaning along with you. They are partakers of the glory to come, and He's a partaker of the glory to come, so He uses also as well, because we're both partakers of the glory to come. But I wouldn't mind slipping in this little bit of reference here about me, that I saw the Lord Jesus Christ suffer. Brethren, I find this. When a man is forgiven, should he look back and let it neuter him? For, For everyone in here, including the pastor. Should he look back and be neutered? Look at Peter bringing up the sufferings of Jesus Christ right here in this way. What comes to your mind immediately? How much did he actually see because he betrayed the Lord? That is, that is bold. The elders which are among you, I exhort, who am also an elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. The glory that will be revealed at the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter was a participant. You know, Peter knew more about his eternal destiny than anyone else because Jesus had told him his name was in the book of life. Do you remember where Jesus told him that? In Luke chapter 10, he and the others came rushing back after they'd cast out devils and performed all kinds of miracles. And they'd say, Lord, even the devils are subject unto us in your name. And he said, Uh uh-uh, 
Don't get too excited about that apostolic power, but rather give thanks that your names are written in heaven. So he knew he was a partaker, and they were partakers as well, and so he encourages them there at the end of verse 1. And when we come back from our break, we will take up with feeding the flock of God, which is among you, because there are two parts of a minister's duty. They're both right here in the first part of verse 2. Feed the flock of God, which is to teach knowledge and understanding, Jeremiah 3.15 and lots of other places, and to take the oversight, that is the leadership and rule of a congregation in those ways that he is supposed to. And then there are three contrasting descriptions, not this way, but this way, not this way, but this way, not, but, and when the chief shepherd shall come, he'll reward you faithful ministers. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word. And may we have rivers of water running down our eyes, and may our spirits be stirred within us at what is happening all around us, and that we will redouble our efforts as pastor and people, as pulpit and pew, to be committed to the words of God without modification or alteration, compromise at all.